Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books, handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one, wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Sydney, 1971. The Armstrong family, mother Alice, father Teddy, daughters Martha and Sadie, freshly displaced from New York City by dint of a promotion for Teddy, take up residence in the Ersatz Manor House recently vacated by Sir Robert and Maureen Deeds. So begins A Dream Life, the new novella from Claire Massoud. What follows is a dryly funny, deeply perceptive story about displacement and class, social climbing and the effect that having domestic staff can have not only on one's family, but also one's sense of self. A Dream Life is a wry and playful story, full of the wit and keen observations readers have come to expect from Claire Massoud, who I'm delighted to say joins me today to discuss it. Claire, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. It's wonderful to be with you. Where I would like to begin is, strangely perhaps, uh, with something you say in the acknowledgements of, um, of A Dream Life, which is that you, you thank um, the American Library in Paris, where you say this story was written. Uh, several years ago. Um, and now, as I said in the introduction, it's a story about Americans in Sydney. And I thought that was a curious detail about its uh, sort of about its origin, that it should be written in, in Paris. So I was just curious, would you begin just by talking a little bit about the, the origins, the seed of this story and how you came to write about Americans in Australia while in Paris? Sure. Um, it's it's not as weird as it sounds. Um, okay. I, I, I was a, a child in Sydney. Um, mm-hmm. My father, my mother was Canadian and my father was French. And, mm-hmm. uh, and my father worked for a French company that posted him to Australia in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. And we moved there when I was a small child. And so um, the, the inspiration for the, for the book is, is, is really that experience is, is, uh, in mm. in some way, it, it's it's a fiction. Much is made up, but but we did have the experience of moving uh, to to a grander house than than we should have, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> to something that was not our normal. You know, was not what what our family had known beforehand, and mm. um, and that was the inspiration for the book. And and as for the uh, writing of it in 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 Paris, I wrote it actually a long time ago now. Uh, when I still believed that my writing life might uh, resemble the writing lives I, I admired and dreamed of, mm. uh, you know, of, of, I don't know, writers in Paris. And, and I, it was before we had children. Our children are now um, essentially grown up. And uh, we went and spent uh, some months uh, living in Paris writing. Mm-hmm. And, and I joined the American Library and I would go there every day and I would uh, I would sometimes 
distractedly and excitedly roam the stacks. It's where I discovered Thomas <laughs> Bernhardt. I discovered oh, wow. the yeah the work of Thomas Bernhardt. I was actually picking. I was going to the shelves for Bernanos, <laughs> Diary of a <laughs> Country Priest, and was intrigued by the covers of Bernhardt next door. So. Um, a rather different writer, um, indeed. <laughs> yeah, um, but so, but so that's how it happened that the that the book was written uh, in Paris, and and it, and it wasn't such a strange, uh, as I say, because my father was French. It was a place that had and has a logic uh, for me, and and in my yeah. dream life, uh, as opposed to my characters, in my dream life, I get to live like you in Paris. Mm. And so you said you spent some of your your, your childhood in um, in Sydney, and uh, you know a lot of the the details from this novel the novella are, are drawn from that. Uh, is Sydney then a place that you have gone back to much over the years? Has it remained a sort of a uh, sort of a, a part of the you know the the Clermont sort of tour places you you would visit repeatedly, or is has it remained sort of quite a sort of a distant dreamy place that you spent some time in once and haven't particularly revisited since? You know, somewhere in between, in fact. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've been back. I've been back a couple of times, and uh, I've probably been back three or four times. I first went back right after university and spent some mm-hmm. months working there. Um, what was my summer after college, but was in Sydney winter, um, mm-hmm. and 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 then you know, then there was a sort of longish hiatus that was in the late eighties, and then I went back at the turn of the century, uh, and then I went back about. Eight or eight years ago, uh, mm-hmm. for the Sydney Festival Writers mm. Festival, um, and so it, it is. It is some strange combination. For me, Sydney is is a is a sort of. Uh, I was. I our, our time there was very happy. It was. A, it was mm-hmm. a. You know, one perhaps idealizes things, but it was a blissful childhood, and mm-hmm. uh, and and in some way, it for a long time it remained a, a kind of hermetically sealed. Uh, place that I didn't, aside from my sister, I didn't know anyone who had the experiences I had. So when mm. I when I went back first in in 1987, to to see that the places I remembered were not my invention but real places, and to be able mm. to see again uh, some of the kids I'd been friends with who were now grown ups like me, uh, you know that that was a a very powerful uh, experience, and, and and I keep. Every time I go back, I have some version of that, the sort of palimpsest. And, and of course, I don't, I cannot at all claim to know Sydney as it is today. You know, it's a very long time since I mm-hmm. uh, was there. But, but, but there are still little pockets that I can go in and, and find where, um, where, where my past is present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm very interested in the the house as it appears in um, A Dream Life, because it's sort of I, I've never I've never been to, to Sydney uh, myself, but I was fascinated by this idea of a sort of uh, a an, an Australian couple who they're sort of essentially a sort of a self-made couple, a sort of an entrepreneur who uh, had been knighted um, for his perhaps his services to business or, you know, for his uh, financial um, sort of acumen. And sort of, in some ways, seemed to be sort of importing a, I mean, a sats. I'm not sure is quite the word, but a sort of a sort of a, a history that was not necessarily present in Australia, and not necessarily present in his or in their uh, backgrounds, their, their 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 with their ancestors, but with sort of an, an idea of a sort of uh, what British or English grandeur and um, and nobility represents i mean is that something that one does actually find in sydney or is this a kind of um a sort of a 
yeah, something a little bit sort of uh, unusual. So I I don't know whether you would find it still in Sydney. <laughs> I'd be I'd be surprised um, whether. <laughs> but what I would say is that um, I am I am more broadly a child of the Commonwealth. When we moved mm-hmm. from Sydney, we moved to Toronto, um, and, and and so you know Canada having a similar, uh, in some ways dissimilar, but an analogous history. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you know one of the things I've discovered over my life is that. Yes, the, 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 perhaps the people in actually in the UK would be surprised by how much, certainly in, in, in earlier generations, there was a, a, an idealization and a reverence and an attachment uh, mm-hmm. to Britain. And, and certainly I, um, I, you know, I have a memory of being in South Africa in the late, uh, you know, in the early 1990s uh, for, for a week, the weekly mail uh, was a newspaper there and, and they had a, a literary festival and the number of times people referred to Anthony Burgess of the times, you know, I mean, mm. there's a real sort of looking to London. Uh, but, but, but when I was a child, uh, my, the school I went to was more, more British than the British. And, you mm. know, all of the rituals and routines were imported from there. I had a, I, people, people, you know, we had to wear our hats, uh, in public, we weren't allowed to eat in uniform. Um, you know, we there were there were all of these elaborate rules, and and I had a friend who's I mean, mother, the fact that there was uniform at all is uh, a very British, <laughs> very British thing. And 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 I had a friend whose mother wore gloves to drive. I mean, you know, it was it 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 was it it was like 1970 Sydney in certain quarters had a feeling of mm-hmm. 1950 London. I think right. You know, yeah. Th- yeah, there yeah. was a sort of lag. But mm. I, I imagine it's much. I imagine, if not, you'd be hard pressed to find the traces now, perhaps. Now, slipping like a ghost through the opulent rooms, Alice thought she understood where she was in a dream life where nothing could matter and nothing would last a hiatus from reality which, precisely like time travel, would deposit her back on her own shores, in her own time, at some unforeseeable but anticipated moment. All this would be revealed to be a mirage, which was why her fear was unnecessary, although she could not quell it, why her anger was itself an illusion, although she could barely contain it, and why her eyes and limbs felt so very heavy as though she dragged through sand. What would make it real? this life. Her husband would have the bank, long hours with men scrubbed and eager as himself, would be juggling numbers, flirting with secretaries, bolstered in emphatic normality by the conferences, the jugs of water, pots of coffee, neat rows of pens and paper, the enclosed hum of air conditioning, and the artificial lights. Her daughters would have school, the thrill of elaborate uniforms and square plastic school cases, name tags on their socks and knickers in the brims of their hats, straw for summer and felt for winter, secured with thick elastic beneath their plump, smooth chins. They would have teachers and playmates, schoolyard games of witches and fairies, and in time, piano lessons at the elbow of the genteel teacher next door. But she, Alice Armstrong, would have only chateau deeds, And to be sure, on that first bleary morning, as she opened doors and drawers and inspected the walled garden and the musty garage in which Lady Maureen's rose-colored Bentley loomed beneath a pearly tarpaulin, 
as she ran her hand along the pink and white bricks, rough and crumbly, at the side of the house, as she inhaled the salt breeze and strolled barefoot across the crispy side lawn to the shade of the miniature orchard, brushing away insects and hearing, as if from far away, the sing-song of her daughter's invented games. To be sure, on that day, Alice Armstrong could not know what that meant. She had, in New York, all her adult life, been herself, a sometime graduate student in art history, a part-time assistant in children's book publishing, a lover, a mother. She had been herself reflected in familiar form by her friends and her employments, webbed by phone calls from her parents and three brothers in their scattered states, bound by the daily rituals of the doormen and the grocery store, by her daily exchanges with the local bag lady who squatted next to her bulging shopping cart, by all the little ties and lines that fetter and constitute a life. Without these, with instead the rhythms of the artificial domain reverberating around her, she would become something else, something unimagined, what Chateau Deeds required, the lady of the house. Because, as Alice Armstrong would soon discover, and as the family's newly elevated circumstances would endorse, a manner of the English style, however reduced in scale, however far from old England, could not run itself. There were, to begin with, the retainers, those that Lady Maureen had left behind, chief among them Davy Jones. His continued employment was a clause of the lease. His mistress wished to retrieve the gardens as she had abandoned them for their coloured beds and statuary to be tended in her absence. Under Davy's salty supervision on more intermittent visits, there were the window washers once a month, the gutterers twice a year, and the handyman, Davy's nephew Nigel, when occasion demanded it. Lady Maureen had let her housekeeper go, Mrs. Spirelli had been near retirement anyway, and grateful for an excuse to return to her flat near Bondi Beach, and so there was, at first, nobody besides Alice herself to wax the parquet and dust the shepherdesses, to water the ferns in the conservatory and polish the brass lion's head knockers on the double-fronted door, let alone the everyday tasks of washing and ironing, of cleaning toilets and beating the rugs, of preparing the meals and mopping the linoleum in the cavernous kitchen. Alice tried to teach the girls to make their beds and tidy their toys, but they could not understand the point of making a bed, which you were only then to unmake again that evening, and enraptured by the acreage of space allotted to them alone, Martha and Sadie yearned fully to inhabit it, strewing dolls and Lego sets and their father's old toy soldiers all across the playroom's painted floorboards. Just staying with the house for a moment, uh, when I started reading, maybe it's just sort of my literary references, and I'm revealing myself a little here, but um, when a sort of a house occupies or sort of the position almost of a character in a book, I have sort of two um, sort of references in mind. One is kind of Mandalay, I'm thinking sort of Rebecca, and the other one is um, the um, the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the house in A Dream Life is neither one nor other of these. And yet, as, as at least what I was bringing to the book, I felt I saw a little bit of of both in a sense. Um, do you did you have any sort of sort of literary precedent in mind when sort of establishing this strange kind of slightly um, discomforting house as a as a sort of protagonist almost of your book? You know, I, I think. Um... Funnily enough, I see I, I, I see both of those uh, references. I, they they weren't conscious. If anything, uh, 
there's a moment uh, which I believe was queried by the Australian copy editor. I said, no, no, we must keep it, uh, which refers to the green baize door. And the mm-hmm. green baize door, which which was for me uh, I, uh, a feature of, of British children's books, from, which I, is what I grew up on, from mm. the sort of turn of the 20th century, sort of E. Nesbitt. Uh, yeah, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the, the okay. five children in it or the phoenix in the carpet. And there were uh-huh. always a sort of passel of children and they lived in some enormous house. And and there was a sort of <laughs> distinction. And I'd never seen a green baize door. And I had, you know, I always wondered, what is it? But baize, of course, is a type of fabric. And it's mm-hmm. the fabric that was in those in those Victorian houses, I think, was was covering to muffle the sound mm-hmm. uh, in the door that separated the service area of the house from the public, from the right. sort of family yeah, yeah. area of the house. And um, and so for me, I think the 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 imaginary, as it were, was was a Victorian children's house, uh, mm. you know, children's book, the houses of, of of those of those British children's books, overlaid by my memories of the house that my family actually rented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think um, the for me, one of the reasons I mentioned um, the Overlook from The Shining is the sort of the sense that. Um, the effect, I guess, that uh, a house can have on its occupants. And that is something that is very, um, very present, and particularly for um, Alice Armstrong, the, the mother of the, of, of the family, who, um, much more than Teddy, of course, because he's, you know, he's the one who's gone there f- for his job, so he's out to work a lot and maybe doesn't have the same, or doesn't spend the same amount of time or doesn't have quite the, uh, the same connection to the to the house that uh, that Alice does, and I'm I'm curious, yeah, to know about that sort of what you see as the sort of the relationship between sort of the, the physical environment, the buildings we inhabit, and our sort of psychological states. Again, particularly when the two are not necessarily in in harmony with each other. Right. I, I mean, for me, it's also connected to the the gendered sphere, right? It's mm-hmm. to the to sure to, to what women the role of women in a traditional. Uh, patriarchal setup Mm -hmm. so so people then and now would look at somebody like alice armstrong and say well she didn't have a job she's a mom with two Mm -hmm. kids her life is so is easy and straightforward and she's very privileged all true but 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 in fact uh you know you you a house uh when you take on a house when you move into a house, you move into a role. So if you if mm-hmm. you move into a small apartment, my my mother always would say, uh, I, I anytime I look at a house, I look at how how um, I, what I'm thinking about is how long will it take to clean it, mm-hmm. right? That's you know so <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so so so, uh, and that's one set of things. If you don't ha- if you don't have a, a staff, which in this case Alice Armstrong mm-hmm. has. Already, when she arrives, there's somebody who takes care of the garden, and then mm-hmm. she th- she has this long hunt for for housekeepers and so on. Um, but but it puts you it puts you in in all sorts of uh, it signifies. I guess a house like that mm-hmm. signifies, and it signifies mm-hmm. to the world outside. And if you arrive as 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 Alice does, with no connections, no friends, no working life outside the house. The house comes to define you, and and people mm-hmm. in the same way that if you go to you know I I used to have a um used to know a woman who came to pick up her her kid from nursery school in in sort of super high heeled shoes and you know an expensive mm-hmm. suit you know and and we all understood her a certain way even though we didn't know her 
right? Yeah. So, so if you have a house like that, people understand you in a certain way. And one of the things that happens is that the people around her are trying to mm-hmm. encourage Alice to sort of live up to the role that the house mm-hmm. represents, right? That, that, that mm-hmm. she, she has been kind of cast as something uh, that she, she hadn't understood, you know, they rented it sight unseen from afar. She didn't understand. And, and, and I think versions of that happen to us all the time. I mean, there are the, we, mm-hmm. there are these signifiers, whether it's a, a building or, 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 or sartorial or, you know, right now my son's one of the captains of the, of his so- high school soccer team. And I did not mm-hmm. understand that that was like, I have a job like being the vicar's wife. Like I have to take, <laughs> I have to take the drinks, right. I have to attend all the games. Like I didn't know that was a job. I sort of had to, I had shirked responsibilities for years, but this yeah. is, I, I have to do the job, you know. <laughs> It's one of those moments when you suddenly regret the uh, <laughs> the position that your son has attained. Right. I, I regret the very first soccer, you know, game we ever took him to, you know, but it's only a few months. It's only a few months. But that's that's one of the things, isn't it? Because one of, one of the, I guess, central conversations at the heart of a dream life, um, which also connects to the thing you said um, a moment ago about, uh, you know, when uh, I think you said it was your mother, when she looks at a house, the first thing she says is, how long will it take to clean? It's a real kind of, class signifier in a way, because there's sort of the assumption that, okay, it's going to be me that's doing the cleaning rather than a staff of some sort. And I think just to even have the sort of the the reflex to sort of ask that question is in some way going to be um, a signifier. Now, one thing that I think is very interesting that it's at work in a dream life is this idea of class. And again, I say this reading as a British person, where of course we come from a very class stratified society. Now you have an American family, um, and now, of course, every society has its own classes in one way or another. But at, in America, there is at least the idea or the dream of a classless society, and there's certainly not the sense of sort of aristocracy, or certainly not in the way we have it in the UK. And then Australia seems, from what I understand, it almost a kind of a hybrid of the two. There seems to be a sort of the. I mean, there's there's a moment. Um, I think it's. Um, the the housekeeper uh, later on says, you know, everyone's equal in this country and we're all entitled to respect. And yet from the kind of the signifiers of, you know, the, the way this house is built and the way in which Alice interacts with um, other people sort of from Teddy's professional circle show that there is still a, um, yeah, there's still this this sense of kind of sort of stratified class system. And I find that sort of triangulation very interesting. Well, I, I think, I mean, in a way, yes, as, as, as you describe it, there's a sort of um, British class system that goes back centuries. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a, a somewhat mythical American idea that, of, of classlessness because, mm-hmm. of course, as we know, you know, find, certainly, I mean, or, or maybe in, Ameri- in, in the United States, class ends up based on on sort of income and and financial mm-hmm. resources and opportunity right so there's a um and then in between the, you know the australian mm. uh the australian uh society certainly at that time right i mean mm-hmm. again i can't speak maybe now it's more uh like an american society but but because because there was this combination of of, of some idea of a class of society and new society beginning again not hidebound by these traditions and yet there were many people keenly uh, uh, adopting and enforcing uh, mm. sort of British, British, British traditions. And, and, and I think, 
uh, in that sense, you know, when I, I know when I, I went to study in Britain, in the UK in the late eighties, after I'd been to college, I went to do a graduate program and I, I had, I, I, I traveled to the UK before. And so I had some idea that, that it would be quite similar and, and, and it really was culturally pretty different at that uh-huh. point. You know, it was really pretty distinct. And, and, and I, um, so when I was imagining somebody of my mother's age, uh, traveling to Australia, you know, I, I wanted also to capture the, the distance that things, people speak the same language, they mm-hmm. dress kind of the same, they read the same books or similar, you know, you sort of think that, that it will be the same, but, but, but it is really quite different. And, and one of the things that you're trying to do is adapt to those, mm-hmm. to those differences that you can't necessarily even see that you're, that you're yeah. trying to figure out, you're trying to figure out. And that, and that's one of the things that Alice sort of has to struggle with sort of doubly so because obviously she's changed country and has to deal with the the sort of the very subtle differences that exist um but also there's been a change of social status in a way because teddy has been promoted in his bank or at least that's how it's um sold to him because there's also some sort of suggestion that perhaps he's been kind of uh moved sort of sideways or out of the way um to australia but that's not necessarily particularly unpacked in the book but so so alice finds herself at once having to adapt yeah to the new society but also to this new role and particularly this very specific role of the lady of the house and that comes with significant challenges for her it it, it does and I, and i think you know that i've always been interested in in this again, these these questions of gender and the and and the roles that are that are expected. You know, as I say that, like mm-hmm. jokingly about being a being a soccer mom in a way I didn't uh, I hadn't fully anticipated. Oh yeah. my goodness! And and I think that um, you know there used to be all these exp- behind every great man as a great woman, so on. You know, mm-hmm. uh, um, these 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 assumptions, which I know from you know I know from my gender studies classes in college date back to the early 19th century, uh, this mm-hmm. idea of the angel in the house, which was the, a switch from thinking of, of women as, as inferior to thinking to the sort of separate but equal model, uh, where, mm-hmm. where women, you know, women have their sphere, women have the domestic realm. And, and, mm-hmm. and that really is what, that, that really is the challenge that uh, I think Alice is facing when she, when she's sort of put literally in this great big house that has a wall around it. I mean, she's, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, she, she is in a way that would never have been true in New York. Uh, she is, she is, um, there, the, isn't there a French word? Emmuré. She is, she is immured. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. She is, she is literally sort of contained in, in the domestic sphere in, in, in a way that, um, that, that she, she has to, she sort of takes on because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think at that time, isn't even fully conscious of what's happened isn't fu- isn't even yeah. fully aware uh, that 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 she's being cast into a a, a sort of almost historical mold. Uh, mm-hmm. It just she didn't know it was coming. Yeah, and then so at the beginning, there's this kind of friction as she almost tries to live, not exactly the life she had in New York, but tries to sort of um, not necessarily fully embody this idea of a kind of aristocratic lady of the house, but sort of tries to take on all of the kind of, with the exception of the gardener who's already present, all, all of the kind of the duties of the house herself. But because of the scale and because of the 
kind of absurdity in a way of the house. She's unable to do this. And so the question of staff raises its head again. And I think this obviously brings us back to the idea of class. Because I think anybody um, who hasn't lived with you know, staff around the house, suddenly having people in your employ changes your relationship, I think, not only to the, you know, the, the people that you're, that you know, are coming into your house, but also with your view of yourself. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that, that, uh, that I was trying to, uh, write about was, was, uh, that, so, so the, the first sort of successful sh- relationship she has is with a woman named Africa who ends up leaving mm-hmm. and, um, returning to the Caribbean where she's from. And, mm-hmm. and in that relationship, uh, there is some ease of communication, maybe mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that, that means that I, I, I can't remember the exact line that I wrote, but it's something like, you know, this was her first and, and only real friend in, in, mm-hmm. in Sydney at the time. And, and, and yet one of the things that happens, there's a sort of caterer and then there's a, a parent from school who she becomes a mother from school who she becomes friendly with who's and then and then the gardener himself they, they all have they're all trying to push her into a certain role they want her to um be the lady of the manor and and, and mm-hmm. that's something that in certain quarters um the staff are trying to impose right as much mm-hmm. as as much as the people around in this you know in the society that they're meeting in other in other uh quarters i, I you know i sort of had had in mind uh, the, uh, I mean, it, it, it seems perhaps flippant to make this analogy. Forgive me, um, but but Lorca's Blood Wedding, mm-hmm. the, pl- the 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 play, uh, in which all the mothers are are weeping about sending their sons to war, but they're also the ones who are saying, "You got to go. You can't not go. You know, your right. your honor depends on it. You got to go." Oh, it's terrible, right? Um, but they're creating the 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 tragedy themselves, mm-hmm. and um, or they're or they're pushing it. And, and, and I think, you know, that, that, that sort of social, that's the thing about social constructs is, mm-hmm. is, um, I'm sure it's also true in, um, I don't know enough about psychology, but in that whole thing about family dynamics and family relationships where we're mm-hmm. always pushing, you know, people get pushed into certain roles and have to kind of step sure. up to them. And, and that's what's happening. That's what's happening with Alice is that she is, you know, that, that everybody around her wants her to do certain things and to, and to sort of yeah. struggle against it is difficult. And then one of the housekeepers, um, Simone Funk, is, is somebody who, who ultimately, for me at least, is, is free of those roles. Like she has, mm. takes on a role, but, she's, but it's just a thing that she's doing. And then she's going to yeah. go do something else, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will certainly come on to Simone uh, <laughs> properly in a minute, but I just want to, st- to stick with this idea because I find that that really fascinating that I that relationship between um, staff and uh, and employer in a way, and particularly I think for somebody who is not used to that. And what it put me in mind of while reading a dream life um, was when I when I first moved to France. Actually, when you know it was in my my early twenties, so not particularly used to eating out anyway uh but also coming from a kind of working class british family where you know the idea that somebody might be at your service um was quite was quite uncomfortable and i would find myself almost apologetically ordering things in restaurants or like trying to sort of establish some sort of camaraderie with the the waiting staff and obviously getting 
you know, not the the best reactions as a result, and realizing that actually that there's a weird kind of, I don't know, it's it's all, I don't know if it if it was condescension on my part or or quite what it was, but this sort of motivation not to be treating the person who was serving me as servile, leading to sort of quite um, quite conflicting emotions, in fact, and it seems that that's definitely something that sort of that Alice suffers with, at least in the first. The first few months of uh, of her time. Absolutely. I mean, I think if you haven't, I mean, you know, we we um, I, I in our house, you know, just any time we at the time when the children were small and 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 we had babysitters, you know, I I I find it um, it's incredibly if you're not used to it, if it's not something you've done, it's it, it can be a, it's stressful. It can be a difficult mm-hmm. relationship to navigate. And 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 I love um, what you're saying about when you first arrived in France, because one of the things I so um, respect in France is that to be a waiter, for example, is is a very serious profession, and right, and yeah. people people are incredibly professional at it right mm-hmm. i mean they go to school and they study how to be uh you know they they study hospitality studies mm-hmm. and they become I, I i had the great um gift of visiting i was going for, to a literary festival in lyon a few years ago and i mm-hmm. was invited to speak to a lycée that was a culinary a, a hospitality lycée and oh, wow. um so they were they were you know kids between 14 and 18 who were learning um to to work in well in the hospitality interest and and mm-hmm. they and they um had read one of my books and they set the table for the characters and they made drinks and dessert <laughs> designed for the characters. Oh it, was incri- it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. It was fantastic, <laughs> but 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 in that sense, right? There's there's a um, it, it perfect like it's professionalized in a way that mm-hmm. isn't true in I don't think in in Britain, certainly not in the no. United States, where where somebody who's who's serving you in a restaurant might well be a a novelist or um mm-hmm. you know or or a school teacher or sure. um you know could be any anything and and so there's this sense of why are you serving me mm-hmm. rather than me serving you you know it feels weird but i feel like when it's professionalized in that way then it then it, it it's sort of different and that i i, I it, to come back to my novel i sort of there's a friend the french couple um Right, that mm-hmm. that that she the, the she is a housekeeper, like she's a totally yeah. professional housekeeper, and and uh, for various reasons they decide they don't like the husband and they don't want that couple mm. uh, to, <laughs> to be in their house. But 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 she but but in some simple way, like she's somebody who would make it, who who would sort of um, almost smooth over those difficulties because mm-hmm. the professionalism would have very specific boundaries because all of these yeah. things about people who who are working in your home or right or or, or in a restaurant those are bound they're boundary issues so how do you make those mm-hmm. those boundaries straightforward you know that's yeah. i mean just in our regular lives that's always a question yes certainly is um have just it's interesting since you since you've mentioned this particular point in the plot i'd like to sort of unpack it a little bit because um you say Italy they decide not to take her because you know they did, did don't like her husband but I think sort of when I was reading it, I kind of had the sense of like the husband provided quite a good excuse for them not to employ the the, the French housekeeper. And there seemed to be something deeper. And I think um, sort of uh, highlighted by the person that they, Simone Funk, who they do ultimately employ, which is the sense that there's almost, I think, particularly for Alice being con- sort of face to face with somebody who is a professional 
housekeeper and sort of embodies the role so completely sort of reflects something back on her that she perhaps doesn't like. Does that seem seem fair? Abs- absolutely, totally. And to go back to your experience, restaurant experience in your early mm. days in Paris, um, it would. It, I'm sure it would have felt great to you if you if you'd struck up a conversation with somebody who was serving you and and, and ended up you know hanging out with them. You would have felt like sure. oh, that's a win. You know, I've I've yeah, charmed yeah. some I've charmed somebody enough that they want to hang out with me. And and I think you know Alice absolutely senses that that's this is no friend or companion, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is a totally professional engagement, and this person's going to be in my house. So, mm-hmm. so, so even though the person, there's a person who would make those boundaries straightforward and clear, she is actually, um, pining for somebody, you know, mm-hmm. she can, as it were, you know, smoke a cigarette with, you know, in the backyard and, and gossip about the neighbors. That's what she's, yeah. that's what she wants. Yeah. Yeah. So enter Simone Funk, who is sort of really within the first few lines of reading about her. I can't remember the last time, like I completely pictured and sort of the I felt a character so embodied on the page so quickly um as uh, as Simone Funk like she um well perhaps perhaps you could introduce her to our um to our listeners well she she's a she's somebody who is uh I would say utterly at home in her skin <laughs> um mm, and yes. she she's not she's on the one hand, she, there there is no pretense. So she shows up mm-hmm. in in jeans, you know, for the interview, saying, "I thought you should see me as I am, not in some sort of artificial uh, version." Um, and 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 she and she's she's confident and 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 sort of easy about the boundaries and great with the kids and um, and very warm and winning. Um, and also, you know, they know from the beginning a, a little bit of a. A fabricator. She has a lot of mm. um, extravagant tales about the things, experiences she's had, and the people she's known, and um, that 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 they sort of laughingly think may or may not be uh-huh. true. Um, but that's part of her part of her charm. And and, and then the mm. question is, how far does that go? Um, you know that. But 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 I think for me, what she what she has above all is is a sort of she's a free spirit. You know that she's mm-hmm. she's somebody. Unlike Alice, who seems very untrapped and make and, mm-hmm. and, and certainly as she presents herself, um, seems as though she's made her own decisions that she mm-hmm. that, that she has agency, right? That she's mm. if she's working as a housekeeper, it's because she wants to. If she's in this house, it's because she wants to be there. Um, and yeah. and that that's a very different um, way of being in the world than Alice has, because Alice hasn't made any choices really in, in mm-hmm. this. Alice is you know, been handed this and has to kind of get on with it. There was one uh, particular adjective that you used for um, Simone Funk, which it, it was odd because even though I couldn't quite say exactly what you meant by it, it seemed to be precisely the right adjective, which was, you write, there was something salty about Simone Funk. And there, that, that adjective salty seems to contain so much um, and to tell us so much about about this particular character. One thing I find fascinating, though, is and a completely identifiable is the fact that, as you say, like they realize she's a bit of a fabulist. They realize, to put it bluntly, she has probably lied to them. And yet somehow they find that more reassuring and find that almost a kind of a, a sort of a plus while uh, when deciding whether to 
whether to to employ her. Do you think the 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 roots of that sort of maybe slightly paradoxical reaction again comes back to to this discomfort to do with um, with staff, or is it something else? Well, I I think it comes back to the conversation we were having about um, the awkwardness um, mm-hmm. and and the and the conflicted feelings you know, that, that many people have and Alice has about employing somebody and wanting somebody wanting, um, if you will, um, some people in, in the narrative make her feel they're the people who make her feel she needs to be at the lady of the manor. And then there, and, mm-hmm. and then some people make her feel, um, bad about that. Like you're the lady of the manor and, and yuck. And some people mm-hmm. make, some people are pretty neutral and professional, like the French uh, housekeeper, and mm-hmm. and and then and then Simone makes her feel like, hey, this is fun, you know, mm-hmm. th- this. Um, and I think, I mean, I just think in life, right? Uh, mm-hmm. This is not a literary point. This is a life point. I feel like, don't we all want to hang out with the people who make us feel, who who reflect back a sort of happy making version of ourselves mm. we don't want to hang out with the people who make us feel like a a, 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 a i don't know a drag or a prig or a, a horrible mm. person or a or a snob or a, what like you don't you want to hang out with the people who, are, who make you feel no we're all good here it's it, you know and, and simone funk does that simone yeah. um makes them feel like this is all let's go this is great let's mm. go you know and that's something which, and I'm going to try and speak very carefully so as not to give anything away about the uh, the plot and the way things develop. But as things, you know, progress and let's say unravel to a certain extent, I guess that's also what lies behind uh, Alice's sort of um, desire, in a way, to 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 cling on to Simone Funk and to not to necessarily see what may be going wrong um, in the house and in their lives as a result of her, because. She does get this kind of this happy making um, view of herself reflected back. Well, and I and I also think you know just coming back to this issue of sort of employing people in the in in your home and especially employing people to take care of your kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's um, you know I was I was aware I wrote this long ago when I when I was uh, rereading it you know um, to to give to Gemma I would. I was I had in the interim, of course, read Leila Slimani's amazing mm, novel. Thinking of this book, <laughs> but that's the sort of very dark. That's the very darkest. Mm. You know, that's the very darkest nightmare. Of course, of course. Um, is is when people. You know, when people uh, when you're ha- you're leaving somebody with your children, is that okay? And mm-hmm. um, and I think uh, once you've made a decision that that's okay. Right. It's it's very, very difficult to uh, allow yourself to question that decision because because then it calls into question all the time those people have been with your children. Mm -hmm. Right. From the beginning until the moment. Right. You decide otherwise. Right. So I I think there's a very particular complexity uh, in that relationship. So what was the, oh yeah, so I guess that also feeds into um, what I was talking about earlier with the reference to uh, Rebecca and Mandalay of having live-in staff. They don't, it's not only that you're 
you have to trust them with your children for a certain period of time, which is, of course, one of the most sort of precious and delicate things you can entrust someone with. But the fact that this person is in the house at all times when you're not, is sort of giving them at least theoretical access to your private sphere, your intimate sphere. And as a result, yeah, you it's that sort of reaction you, you talked about a moment ago of having to of having to trust them because the I guess the consequences, psychological consequences of not trusting them are too difficult to bear. Right. I mean, <clears throat> it is a little scary, right? The idea that mm-hmm. that uh, somebody uh, when you're when you're out can go through your drawers, they can uh, mm-hmm. they can read your uh, your bills and your checkbook and your private letters. Uh, it, it's it's quite a, a wild uh, it's quite a wild thing. The idea that you're living mm-hmm. with somebody who you who you don't fully know, and um, mm-hmm. you know I think also of remains of the day, right? That the, the sort of on, right. Right. on the opposite side, uh, where where uh, if you will, um, you know, and I'm. I'm forgetting his name, but the butler, you know, he, he, the narrator has to, has to, has had to sort of have similarly a sort of fantastical con- idealized construction of, of, of his boss. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't want to know too much. Right. That yeah, there, yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a wonderful thing that, uh, that Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Dalloway writes about, uh, Mrs. Dalloway thinks about, uh, the, about marriage where she says, you know, there has to mm-hmm. be a certain distance and a certain mystery. There has to be what's unknown. And I think, and you know, that's something that's happening also in, in any time somebody uh, in any kind of uh, employer employee relationship where somebody's living, mm-hmm. living in your house is that you, you, th- there is mystery and you kind of have to leave that space and, and trust it. Mm-hmm. Seems a little scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, certainly. Um, we're we're almost out of time, so I think where I would like to uh, finish is just coming back to Simone Funk because it's been we talked about her a little bit, but um, one of the difficulties when talking, obviously, about a novel is there's so much we can't talk about without spoiling it for um, for for future readers. Um, but I'm just curious. You said you wrote the book um, quite a long time ago, and Simone Funk just seems such a sort of a living kind of. Um, ebullient character with so much potential. Um, has she stayed with you? Like, has she perhaps surfaced, not necessarily with the same name, but sort of in different sort of incarnations in things that you have written since? Or can you imagine her kind of returning to you and returning to your writing in some form in the future? You know, she hasn't. She hasn't yet returned. But but it is true that. Uh, you know, I I have I have great affection for Simone Funk. As in childhood, I had great affection for the actual woman who inspired her. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, so so I, I it's it, I think it would actually be good for me to I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm 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 pretty good at um, how should I put it? I'm pretty good at 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 the angst. Like, I feel like when I'm writing the characters with the angst, I'm totally feeling it, you know, and I feel like it would be great for me to to live with uh, for for a certain amount Mm. of time, a character who doesn't have the angst. That would be a um, that'd be great. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Although you never know, I'm sure, you know, dig, dig enough and you'd probably even find the angst in Simone Funk. Yes, for sure. A different a different (laughs) set of of anxieties. But yes. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alas. <laughs> well, as I say, that is all we've got time for. A Dream Life, such a wonderful book um, published by Tableau, um, which is a new imprint set up by, uh, obviously, the dear Gemma Burrell, of, formerly of this parish, formerly of, uh, of my position here at Shakespeare and Company. So it's such a, it's such a wonderful uh, thing for us to be able to support this new um, imprint. Uh, a Dream Life is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online shop, and I'm sure from your neighborhood independent bookstore, wherever you are in the world. Um, but all that remains for me to say is, Clamasu, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Oh, Adam, I can't thank you enough. What a joy to be with you and, and such a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.